So we're looking at um, starting, what we're looking at doing is um, what translation, what are Bible translations? Why do we have so many? Why are some better than others? What are the priorities that you want to look for when you're looking for a Bible translation? Um, I'm sure many of you know that the first full English translation of the Bible was the new, it was the, I keep saying New King James. No, it was just the first, the old King James, the King James Bible, the KJV, which we all know so well, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my soul. That's the King James. That's why we know all the Bible greats, you know, Psalm 23, we know that in the King James Version. And so the reason why people will hold on to that and still use it today is that was in, yeah, thank you, Mary. Yeah, early. So it's following the Reformation. The Reformation has already happened in England. And this, this was, let's see, James was Elizabeth's successor. So it was going to be, um, Oh, amazing. I love being Anglican that everybody knows when Queen Elizabeth died. It's beautiful. She's, she's, she's right. Shakespeare, he overlapped Elizabeth's reign and James's reign. But so essentially it is Shakespearean English, which is why I love it in, on one level. But when you read Shakespeare, do you know what he's talking about? Not so much. So when, when that's why that translation is not God's Holy Bible descended from heaven. It's just the first full English translation. And so when you see people, there are some people who believe that the King James is the only Bible you can ever read. It's the real Bible. The real Bible is in Hebrew and Greek. I didn't bring my Greek copy. But if you're going to say this is the real Bible, you're going to have to start waving a Greek Bible um, or a Hebrew Bible. And then you really won't know what it says, unless you've taken Greek and Hebrew, which everyone can and should. It's a wonderful thing to have. So when we look at translations, we look for translations that are accurate to the Hebrew and the Greek and that are accurate to the English language. Language changes all the time. Our The way we talk to each other changes all the time. And so... And yet, if you, um, it, you might not be talking the way your grandchildren are talking. So you want to talk, you want to read a Bible that's going to make the most sense to the way you speak. So does that make sense to you that, um, you know, your grandchildren might be talking about apps and things like that, and you think, oh, well, that's so funny, we didn't have that, and I don't really know what that means. Or, um, and so... So don't necessarily, the Bible that they will read is going to be a little different than the Bible. The English translation of the Bible that they read will be different than the English translation you might want to read. But here are the best, the greatest, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and remember, with the two criteria, the primary criteria of the best translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, and then secondarily, the most um, understandable as far as the accuracy of what's being said. Remember, when we're studying the Bible, we want to know what is God saying? What did God say? What did this mean first for those first people who heard or read this scripture? So what did this mean for the people in the first century, those first century Christians? What did it mean for the ancient Israelites? And then what does it mean for us? How does that apply today? And that question is always changing because today is always changing, right? Um, but yet there are some things... It, still meant the same thing for them then, 
even though it might be have a changing meaning for us today. Does that make sense? So um, with all that to say, and by changing meaning, I don't mean drastic changes. I don't mean what other people mean when they say that. Okay, so English translations that are really good. Um, there's a really good one that came out about the middle of the century, of the last century, so like 1950s, 19th 60s, but I think it was even earlier. I don't know when it first came out, but that's the Revised Standard Version, RSV. And that one is in, yeah, that is in the new Oxford Annotated Bible. Larry Gibson recommended this. Yep, yep. So your new, um, Trudy, your new Oxford, that's what I thought. I'm so glad you brought yours. It is the RSV. And what that one does, it's not quite as accurate to the Greek, I think it's as the NASB, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head all these acronyms, but the NASB, some of them will translate the Greek exactly, and when you read it, you think, what are they talking about? That sentence doesn't make any sense in English. Well, one of the problems, Greek words are all switched around in the sentence, their sentence structure is fluid, so um, like Spanish is a little bit fluid, I think, you can switch things around in a way you can't in English. And so um, NASB reflects that more, and the, the ordering of thought in the English is not as accurate. So even though it's accurate to the Greek, what is the Greek actually saying? It doesn't make as much sense to us the way we speak English. That RSV is a great medium um, between that. And um, it might be, so that's a good one. Also, um, the um, NRSV came out maybe in the 90s, and that's an updated version of the RSV with slightly more contemporary language. It reflects the change in the English language, which, and I was explaining this, like it or not, one of the things that has changed is that mankind very often for young women does not mean me too. When we say, I was just saying in French, when you say you all, y'all, I love you plural. When you say y'all, in French, it's masculine or feminine because everything, and same with Greek, it's masculine or feminine based on who you all are. But in this room right now, it's y'all feminine because we're all women. But if one guy walked in the door, it'd be y'all masculine, all masculine, even though we're 99% feminine, female. Do you see that? And so um, that's what we've understood. That's why when we say mankind, we know, because we remember what it's always been like in English, we know that that means us too, even though it says man, means us. But I guarantee you that the 17-year-old is not necessarily being taught that in school, that mankind means her too. And so that's why a gender-inclusive language, it, it, Bible, can be helpful for younger women especially. So that would be the NRSV. So when the, when the Greek says brothers or men, um, what it's translating, that that's the you all masculine, and the NRSV will say men and women or brothers and sisters, which is the intent of the original Greek, but it gets lost in translation. So that one is also good. The NIV is a night, was, came out in the 70s or 80s, New and international. new international version. And that one is pretty accurate to the Greek, not quite as accurate as the RSV and this other one that I'm gonna give you last. But what's great about it is that it's so readable. And that's the one, that's maybe the Bible I know the best because it's what I, we, I studied all growing up. You know, all of my Bible memorization 
was NIV. So I remember the NIV better than, and that's, that's an argument for using a certain Bible over another Bible. If it's the one that you have memorized, go for it, right? And then the final one came out, and this is what I use when I teach and when I preach, when I study, um, and it's the ESV. So it's the English Standard Version. This came out in 2001. Um, and what I love about it is that it's very accurate to the Greek. It echoes some of the phrasing that we're used to in the English from the RSV, and yet it's updated language. Um, it is not gender inclusive. So when, it's, when, when Paul says brothers, it says brothers, even though Paul means all of y'all, male and female. This still says brothers. So if you think, if you don't see yourself being included in that, like the 17-year-old girl might not like the, not might not understand that Paul is talking directly to her and that God is talking directly to her through it. Um, so maybe don't give it to your granddaughter, but it's a great one to study. Does that does that help? Good, good. And this one you can download it on your phone, and we'll talk about phones next week. So if you have any, if you have a phone, especially if it's Apple, if you have a phone, an iPad, anything, bring it in next week, and we can, we'll do a little techie session and try and get all of our. I'm curious. Yeah. How many of you have iPads and phones? Surely I'm with you, darling. Oh no! Oh oh! I'm sorry. You can come 15 minutes late if you want, or you can, or you can think. I'm so glad I don't have that headache. No, Look I at how much that headache. These are what, 30 and 40s, and, and we're looking over Oh, look, Leslie, nope. I just think that's interesting. Yeah, you all, you all smart. Yeah, I know. Sorry, Barbara. I hope I hope you're not bored during that session. One of the great things about it, remember how I was talking about my parents packing their Bibles? Well, they, um, you don't have to lug it. So if you're going, if you're traveling, you have the Bible right there, assuming the technology works. I have, you know, three translations of the Bible on my little tiny device, which can be. I agree. I think you're right, Barbara. Do you have any questions before we get into John chapter 9? Do you have any questions about Bible translations? Yeah, Betsy. Your Bible is read from the pulpit. Yeah, on Sunday mornings, it's the RSV. The Oxford Annotated Bible is the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, which was the one I first mentioned. And what do they mean by the second something another? Yeah, the new, it's called the new Revised Standard Version. Okay. And what that means is it's just some of the language which is slightly archaic, slightly formal, the these and the thous is taken out. So it's almost like the difference between the contemporary language in Rite 2 in our liturgy versus Rite 1. Heidi, no, uh, Hallie copies it every Sunday because we don't have that Bible in the... In the in I know. Yeah, okay. yeah, and we, we don't... I don't know why we don't. It'd be a lot easier for her if we just bought one of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be a great gift. Yeah. Any Any other questions? Okay, well, now that it's 9.30, let's, um, let's, let's read together um, our, our verses from Isaiah 55 that are at the top of the sheet, um, and then I'll pray for us. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven 
and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would send forth your word, that um, as we study your holy word, your written word, that you would draw us near and reveal to us your eternal word, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. So, um, if you recall, in John's gospel, we have, um, we have been in Galilee, geographically, we've been in uh, Jerusalem, Jesus, you know, it's, I find it helpful to map his, where, where in the world is Jesus and his disciples in the story as we're reading John, and um, because then it helps you understand what's going on thematically as well. Um, so we have a particular setting that's been going on since the beginning of chapter 7 that we've been looking at this since January, um, and does anybody remember what that is? Where is Jesus and why is he where he is? There you go. So he was, thank you, Judy. So he was in Galilee, which is where he fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. And then, remember, we're getting the big picture. What's the big the horizon? Let's look at the horizon and see what, what we're looking at before we zoom in and find out what's going on right here in John chapter 9, verse 8 through 41. So on the horizon, we see that he was up in Galilee. He fed the 5,000. Then he spoke for a long time. There's a long theological discourse in chapter 6 where Jesus explains the significance of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The other gospel writers have that miracle and talk about the miracle, but we don't get to see what it means. And Jesus, you know, we can, we can reflect on what it means, but John has Jesus telling us and interpreting the miracle for us and showing us that it's not just about this miraculous provision of bread for hungry people and his ability to um, command nature, to say bread multiply, be, you know, and that sort of miraculous power that he has. It's not just about that. It's rather about pointing that, that miracles, in fact, not just a, a mighty deed, which is what the other gospel writers call Jesus' miracles, mighty deeds, but works of power. It's not just a work of power, but it's a work of power with significance, with theological and spiritual significance. And in John's gospel, that's one of the things that makes John different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's writing later on in the first century, and he has probably, I do believe, he's read the other gospels. He knows what they've said, and he was there, and he's saying, oh yes, and, yes, that happened, and this happened. And so he's giving us this window into what Jesus is saying about what it is that Jesus has done. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a miraculous deed that's also a sign that points to Jesus's identity. Who is this man, Jesus? And as we saw in chapter 7 and 8, Jesus was there in the temple teaching. And um, that was the question that kept coming up, wasn't it? The crowd kept, kept asking him, who are you? Where are you from? Why do you have the authority to teach the way you teach? No one has ever taught the way you, you teach. Who are you and what does this mean? And so, um, so 
their questions um, end up, what, uh, do you remember what ends up happening in chapter 7 and 8? Chapter 7 and 8, we, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and there are different themes involved in that feast. Themes that um, that feast was a way of celebrating and remembering their, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. And then that time, those 40 years in the desert where they wandered before they entered into the promised land. And when they wandered in the desert, they hungered, they, they had thirst, and God miraculously provided for them. Remember, they're complaining and complaining, and um, Moses goes to God and says, what am I going to do with this people you gave me? They're complaining all the time, and I don't know what to do with them, and they're thirsty. And God tells Moses to take his staff and strike the rock, and out of the rock miraculously flowed water. And so that they remember that miracle at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would remember it by pouring out water on the ground as a drink offering, a libation of, of thanksgiving, saying, look, God, we remember that you gave us water in the desert, and we are thankful. We remember today, and we're, we're grateful. So there's the idea of water, and Jesus then in John 7 takes the same idea of water, and he uses it to point to himself. And he says in John chapter 7, Verse 37 through 39, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is saying that he himself is the true source of living water. He is the rock that will provide spiritual water for his thirsty people. So that is really the climax of his teaching in chapter 7. And um, then going on in chapter 8, we see another theme from the Feast of the Tabernacles brought out. Do you remember what that second theme was that we see in chapter 8 especially? Yeah, light, that's right. Oh, yeah, oh, I, I gave it to you right there. Jesus, the light of the world. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take anything we can get, right? So in chapter 8, Jesus then, um, he begins in verse 12, after that interlude with the woman caught in adultery, set off in brackets in my Bible and probably in yours. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you remember what was it in the wilderness that gave the Israelites light? Why did they need light? Yeah, where we're going. Yeah, kind of like the on a smaller scale, the light in my car that I always forget and leave on because I've been looking at a map or something like that when it's nighttime. They needed light to be able to find their way in the dark desert. And the Lord would go before them with a pillar, as a pillar of light, guiding them through the desert. And they remembered that light that the Lord sent. And they gave thanks for it during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they would light ceremonial lamps to remember that pillar of fire that was the Lord guiding them. Um, and so Jesus then says, when he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying he is um, the embodiment of that, um, the light that was there for the Israelites centuries before, and that um, he is the true light that gives light to the world, spiritual light, spiritual truth, um, enlightenment in the sense of opening up our minds to God's truth. Um, the holiness of God is always characterized by light. God's majesty is characterized, is described um, through light. And so in chapter 8, what happens, Jesus keeps saying all these provocative things. 
and the crowd is divided about who he is. And it's almost as though he's waiting. He's trying to fan into flame um, their faith. There's a little bit of faith. And some believe, but then others fail to believe. They keep disbelieving in Jesus. They don't want to believe. They're digging in their heels. It's not just an intellectual problem. It's an emotional problem. They're saying, nope, nope, nope. I will not believe. I'll not be taken in. Um, And Jesus is challenging them. And it's almost as though he's taking different tactics to try and get them to come along in faith and believe in him. And as it turns out, he ends up saying, he's trying to say, I'm from God the Father. He's trying to say that he existed before the creation of the world. He's trying to point to his own divinity. And he's making claims that they find utterly blasphemous. Remember what C.S. Lewis says, either he is, um, either he is who he says he is, or he's a madman. And they believe he's a madman. And so at the end of chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that's in chapter 8, verse 58. Does anybody see what happens after verse 58? Yep, they're going to stone him because he has claimed to exist before Abraham. They picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hides himself and gets out of the temple. Uh, He just goes away. He's free. It's not his time to die yet. Um, And as he's going by, remember last week we saw he sees a man blind from birth. And technology. Um, and And he heals that man. He makes mud and he puts the mud on the man's eyes and tells the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then the man washes and comes back seeing. That's what we have in verse 7 of chapter 9. Any questions about that from all of, uh, all of what we've been looking at for the last several weeks? Yes, yeah, Shirley. Um, that was how many miles is that desert that they walked through? I'm so bad with miles. And I don't know off the top of my head. If someone has a study Bible, they would find it if you oh, could... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the map. Oh, yeah. Look at you. Okay, you're saving the day. Um, so, if you can do the, um, let's see, let's do the scale, right? Ten. So, they were up here, ten, ten, probably no more than 30 miles. Well, well, I mean, 30, I'm thinking 30 miles from um, Galilee to Jerusalem. That's a different question. But they would walk that, you know, which if you walked everywhere, that's not a lot to walk. We wouldn't. <laughs> but it's not straight either. It's over hills and things too. It's a long so it's journey. It's really a little bit longer than that. Although if you come over here, it's straight there. It, it gets flat after, I think, after the river. Because this is called the Highway of the Kings. They'd go, they'd go up and down and up and down. But this is really hilly. And you're right, Barbara. It's very tough to travel here. Um, and then, what? let's see, what other maps do we have? In, ooh, I love the maps. Thank you, Kay. Um, what you will see is that as you look down into, okay, well, I don't know if you can see it in that photo. The the desert that they wandered in, in... Um, Coming from Egypt, too, they had to go across mm-hmm. the desert. Exactly, they did. No one, no one knows for sure, but we know that the Israelites came out of Egypt here. Remember that little 30 miles? That was like, that's that little bit right there. So this little triangle, which is much bigger than the tiny land of Israel, which is the um, 
the Sinai Desert there is probably where they wandered, but they wandered for 40 years. <coughs> I think they must have gotten over into the Arabian Desert as well. You can't wander for 40 years in about 100 <laughs> miles, right? <laughs> You're really lost. Even though they um, were questioning him all the way, they did follow him, and that's a long walk. I, you're right. That is a long walk. Forty years of walking. So there was a lot of grumbling and questioning, but you're right. There was a lot of faithfulness in following God, following that pillar of fire and that yeah. pillar of cloud for the ancient Israelites. took a lot of faith, too. I mean, you know when you get lost and you're driving, you're probably with your husband, and you're lo- you know you're lost. And you know, and also, but it was such a complicated caravan with, with all their animals, and you know, goats and children. Children. children and children. 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 I mean, it, it would have been a very. And I wonder if they didn't have to, if they didn't stop for two years, years at yeah. one time. I think so too. Yeah, to have, you yeah. know. Um, Especially if they found a place that was anywhere remotely so green. green. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the, the numbers that you see in 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 the book of Exodus and Leviticus, like in, in the book of Numbers, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I think one count is 600,000 people. Can't, can't imagine. Plus, it'd be like a plague of locusts wherever they went. Yeah. So the miraculous provision was to be remembered. Um, anything else about the Feast of Tabernacles, the wandering in the wilderness that it remembered, and then Jesus' own ministry and the healing of the man born blind. Okay, well, let's um, start reading. We're going to read a lot. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. Um, and what let's just do is, if you'd like to read, why don't you just start reading and read a few verses, and then someone else will pick up after you. So we're beginning in verse 8 of chapter 9. Them, the man they called Jesus made mud and smoothed it over my eyes and told them, Go to the pool of Siloam mm-hmm. and wash off the mud. I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. And then they took the man to the Pharisees. Uh, now, as it happened, Jesus had healed, had healed the man on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he smoothed the mud over my eyes, and when it was washed away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him. 
that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? And how does he now see? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son, and he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or oh, who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, but the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become the disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, there is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sin, and are you teaching us? And they took him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say you see, your guilt remains. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? Well, do you see why I chose to do this all at once? What? Yeah, because, geez, and I almost, I'm kicking myself because I had thought, I had had the idea and, and we haven't done it and it's too late now. But it, this is the kind of thing, I don't know if you noticed how much dialogue there is. That back and forth and back and forth. This is the perfect kind of thing, to not to act out necessarily, but to have different speakers. So I thought, I had this thought last night, oh, I should have some say, um, some speak for 
as though they were um, speaking the words of Jesus. Some speak as though they're speaking the words of the blind, the once blind man, and some as the parents, and some as the neighbors, <coughs> and some as the Jewish leaders. Whenever, remember, whenever we see the Jews in John, it is usually that he's indicating those religious leaders. He's not talking about the ethnic people of the Jews. That term was not used yet to say all of the Jewish people. That term was used to point to those Jewish people who lived in Judea, and John is specifically using it to identify those of the Jewish faith who specifically rejected Jesus and did not believe in Jesus. Um, when he says so, when he says the Jews, that's what he is referring to. Um, and so, what do you see? What do you notice about this passage? What happens with the blind man? He's he was no longer blind. What happens first? Exactly. He's not hiding it. Well, can you imagine if you had been completely healed, you're going to talk about it. You're going to tell people about it. And that's what happens. His nosy neighbors, I said nosy neighbors because I think they're well-meaning, but I'm sure we each have had well-meaning neighbors that have done something that was really not helpful for us. With his well-meaning neighbors see him and they wonder, wow, we thought we knew, th- isn't this the, the guy we know? Is it, but he was blind. The beggar? Is he now? He can see us? And uh, it couldn't be the same man because that can't happen. You can't be healed from blindness. And some say it's he. I'm in verse 9. And others said, no, but he's like him. And he keeps saying, nope, that's me. I'm the man. I used to be blind and now I see. He's bearing witness to what has happened to him. Nope, I see. And then they ask him, how are your eyes open? And he explains. And then my favorite part in verse 12, they say to him, where is he? Where's Jesus? Where's this man that opened your blind, your, opened your eyes? Can't you just picture that guy saying, I was blind. How do you think I know what he looks like? I have no idea who he is. You could all start talking and maybe I can pick out his voice, but I don't know where he is. He told me to go wash and I went and washed and here I am. I'm back. How, I don't know where he is. So when he says, I don't know. He's just sort of telling the truth and saying, no, I really don't know. How could I know? Um, And then they bring this man to the Pharisees to authenticate what happened, to say, did this really happen? What went on here? And that's when the trouble begins. Why um, are they so interested in finding out what happened with this man? I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 14. On the Sabbath, we already found out in chapter 5 that healing on the Sabbath in general was a big no-no. It was considered to be work. And you, in some ways, the religious authorities would police who worked and who didn't work on the Sabbath. If you worked on the Sabbath in, in the Mosaic law, you could be stoned. I mean, there was a serious offense to work on the Sabbath. And yet the rabbis, as they began to, as they thought about over the years, they tried to, they reflected on, um, and this is in the writings of the, of the Jewish rabbis, they reflected on the seven-day creation on, you know, described in Genesis 1 and said, okay, so God created everything in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. And we're supposed to rest because we're commanded by him to do that. But yet... The sun still rises on that last on that seventh day, and the universe doesn't fall apart. So God, in some way, must still be working. 
Maybe God is the only one who's allowed to work on the Sabbath day. And they remember earlier, Jesus would argue to them, well, you, you circumcise babies on the Sabbath day. Remember, we tried to do the math. If you're born on a, the Sabbath is a Saturday, you're born on a Friday, then the eighth day would be sa- the Sabbath. If you were born on, and the eighth day came around, the law of Moses said you circumcise on the eighth day, no matter where that day falls in the week. And so Jesus looked at that earlier in chapter 7 and said, you do that, and that's only a partial healing. That's a healing in bits, but it's not full healing. Why will you do that on the Sabbath, and yet you cannot um, envision that God would want to heal someone, someone's whole body and forgive their sins on the Sabbath day? Um, so essentially, by working on the Sabbath, by healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is, claim, Jesus is claiming to be a higher authority. The rules don't apply to him. He is God himself. God works on the Sabbath to bring about healing and to continue to um, restore and maintain all of creation. Well, Jesus can work on the Sabbath too, is what he's saying. And that's why they are so angry about it, because it's a claim. It's a claim to be greater than just a mere faithful human being, faithful Jew. Any questions about that? Why else? Well, also, sorry, before I open to questions, one more thing, too, in this one, unlike in Chapter 5, Chapter 5 saw the healing of a man lying by the pool in Bethesda in Jerusalem, and Jesus got in trouble with the religious authorities because it was a Sabbath. Here he heals the man, um, and he makes mud. So the making of the mud put on the man's eyes was considered to be work. He was doing too much work. That was work um, based on their concept of what was work. Um, so he, that's why they want to know more about Jesus. That's why they want to know more about this blind man. Any questions about that? Well, what happens? What happens as they start to question the man? Well, let's just look at, um, I'm skipping down now. We're still in um, the first part about content, but I want to skip down to the big themes. Um, yes, there's division. You keep, and this we'll keep seeing that the leaders, just as they divided in chapter seven, chapter eight, some believe and some don't believe. We'll keep on seeing that, and they keep questioning, who is this man Jesus, and where is he from? Well, they'll keep doing this here in chapter nine as well. But let's look at those verses that I put down there that talk about. Those are the actual quotes of the healed man about Jesus. What does he say about Jesus in verse 17? He's a prophet. Yes, and he said that after describing what he did. I wonder, well, he says, okay, so next time he says, no, he's a prophet. Next, what does he say? What does he say in the next verse, 25? Oh, yeah. Yes. Is he? Oh, yes. Um, And then also a little further down, because that's where they're interrogating his parents, right? And then if you look a little further down, in 25, he says, they're now questioning the man who had been blind again. And they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, he could not have healed you because he's not holy, because he's doing this work on the Sabbath. He's a sinner. So you must be lying is what they're saying to him. Are you lying to the blind man? And what does the blind man say, or once blind? 
I like to say once blind because he's no longer blind, he sees. Yes, and about Jesus, he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. He's, he's pushing back at the religious authorities. That takes some guts to push back and say, I don't know. You're going to have to solve this one on your own. I'm, I'm sticking by my story. All I know is I was blind and now I see. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And then they ask again, what does it say? And um, he goes on in verses... Um, uh, he keeps going. He gets. What, do you see what happens? He gets a little frustrated. Why do you think he gets frustrated? Right. The truth is, I was blind and now I see. And what? what how do they receive that? They don't believe it. They, they say, well, that can't be true. The physical reality can't be true because of the spiritual reality that we perceive is true. Um, we have spiritual sight, and you don't. This is what we know. So your understanding of the physical reality of this is off. You're wrong because we have the spiritual sight to say, well, this man couldn't have healed you. It's impossible. Isn't it interesting? Um, and what does he do? He gets, starts to get frustrated, right? And can you believe how he's speaking to these religious authorities? Can you imagine? Do you see some of the sarcastic things he says? What do you think is sarcastic that he says in that section? I, told you. <laughs> I know. Verse 27. I have told you already and you would not listen. Exactly. Now he's getting now he's now he's getting cheeky. I know. He's getting a little saucy. He's pushing back. He's getting frustrated. But and it's like he realizes that he's under a different and better authority. Yeah. And what do you think happens as he gets out, as he verbalizes the truth of what happened to him so many times, as he keeps telling his story, he's getting it out. I don't know if any of you are a verbal processor like me, but sometimes I'll surprise myself because I'll say something and then I'll think, oh, I think that. Look at that. There it is. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, it's a little startling. You have to be careful. But that so, sometimes getting something out, speaking it aloud or journaling it, that's why I'm a big journaler because it's a way of speaking it out loud when I don't have anyone to tell it to. It's a way of getting it out from outside my head and then I can see it and say, oh, look at that. That's what I think. He is getting out this story and he's looking at his story and he's saying, wow, look at this. Can you imagine? Do you want to become, and then he's, um, as they keep pressing him, as they keep um, trying him and interrogating him, um, he just gets more and more adamant about what happened and about who Jesus is. So he gets um, saucier in verse 30. Do you see what he says? They're reviling him. They revile him when he is... um, teasing them and saying, do you also want to become his disciples? In verse 28, they revile him, is what my translation says. And they say, you are his disciples. But we're disciples of Moses, of a better man, um, of the true prophet. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. There's that question of where Jesus came from. Again, they don't know. So, yeah. Than Jesus' testimony? 
Oh. No, they kind of didn't buy him. They didn't listen to him a whole lot when he was. Yeah, so Moses was the greatest prophet there ever was in their mind. What was it about Moses? He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He spoke with God face to face. He spoke with God face to face. And remember, the glory of God was upon him. He would come down from the mountain with this radiant face. And they would say, no, 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 hide your face. We can't look at you. It's too much. The holiness of God, the presence of God resting on you is too much. We'll die. Because they remembered that at Mount Sinai, you got too close to the holy. When God was there speaking with Moses, he wanted to stand back. There were parameters um, to make sure, perimeters too, to make sure that you didn't get too close to the mountain as an unholy person. He gave them the law. He gave them the temple, the taber- I mean, the tabernacle, the guidelines for the tabernacle. He guided them in the desert. He got them out of Egypt in the first place. And even though there was a lot of grumbling about him, they still saw him as their deliverer and God's special agent, the greatest prophet of them all. So even though there are other prophets, the, greater, the next greater prophet in their mind was Elijah. I mean, just think of the amount of transfiguration. Remember there, Jesus is transfigured, and Moses is there with him, and so is Elijah. And they represent the two parts of the Hebrew Scriptures as well. So Moses was the main character, you could say, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And we believe, I believe Moses wrote them down. Think that, you know, the stories had been passed on orally, but he was the one to first write them down. And then you look at... um, all of the prophets in the writings coming after the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, all of those, you know, First and Second Samuel, Joshua, Ruth, Judges, um, all of those were considered to be called, I think they're prophets and writings. And so the main figure that you see coming out from there, in their minds that the big hero and the big star of those books was Elijah, um, who did all those miracles. Um, does that help at all? Right. He didn't go to that same trouble with Jesus. Jesus was the first hand, and he was God, and he didn't go to the same trouble to authenticate himself I think that's a really interesting point. I think you're right. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, Moses is a broken vessel, and you see that, and he's very clear about when telling his own story in the Pentateuch. You know, he defies God, and that's why he doesn't get to go into the Promised Land. Um, well, chronologically, yeah, uh, he has not. Uh, God has not totally revealed yet who Jesus really is. I mean, Jesus yeah. himself says, says that. He says it over and over and over and again. again. You don't know who I am yet. Uh, like when Peter, you mm-hmm. know, he says, I can't remember the, the context, but. He's just, they, he hasn't fully, revealed, he hasn't fully been revealed yet. Mm-hmm. Were there other people around like, making similar claims? Similar claims to be messiahs at the, around the same era, but Jesus' claim is not just to be messiah. These, keep, these leaders keep asking him, pressing him, because they want to know, is he the messiah? Because the messiah's um, 
the Messiah would be the next great prophet and king, the prophet um, foretold in Deuteronomy that would be like Moses, the king in David's line. They expected those things of the Messiah, but they didn't expect that he would be ontologically, is a big word for, in his very being, God himself. That was not what they expected, a pre-existent, you know, this man existed, this person existed before being in the flesh. And that is totally mind-boggling. And that's what Jesus is saying in John. And you see, I think what you see is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, remember, Jesus says to his disciples, you won't get this now, but I'll send the Holy Spirit and then you'll get it. And so in some ways, the the fullness of revelation and understanding is when when Jesus is ascended, which we are remembering next week, and then the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, and the disciples have this these such aha moments where they look back at the things Jesus said, and they they make sense now. So I think that's a lot of what John is doing is making sense of the things Jesus did and said in light of the Holy Spirit, in light of his identity. Yeah. Um, you know, we were speaking of the transfiguration. Why does John not address that? It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Isn't that funny? It's not in John, but he was there, mm-hmm. right? What about John chapter 1, verse, I think it's 14? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's... So he's just alluding to the transfiguration. I think he is there. John yeah. saw him. And yet he doesn't need to tell it again because maybe he thinks, well, you know, it really happened and those three other guys got it exactly right. Nothing else to be said. Yeah. Um, so back to chapter 9. One of the things, we only have a couple more minutes, but one of the things I want to highlight is that as the man, you remember we're looking at what the man says about Jesus. He's saucy and he's pushing back at the Pharisees even as they're pressing and interrogating him about who Jesus is. Um, they they go on to say um, if this uh, they go on to say never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of man born blind. If this man oh no this is what he says excuse me excuse me they are pressing him and they are saying he is not from God we don't know where he comes from that's in verse 29 and then the man goes off and he teaches them why this is an amazing thing do you hear the sarcasm still a little bit the irony. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Now he starts to teach them. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then they answer him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? They're so disgusted that he is... Going, going off and trying to say, no, really, this man is from God. That's what he's saying about Jesus. This man really is from God. And they're so horrified that, they're, that um, this peon, who has not been to seminary or the rabbinic equivalent of seminary, who's not studied the scriptures, is trying to tell them what's what. In their pride, they miss out on what has just happened with this man. And they miss out on the spiritual reality and the spiritual truth of what's going on and what has happened. Unless you're studying 
No, because of his blindness. Remember last week there was this question, who sinned, his father or his parents or this this guy? And they're saying he's a sinner. That's why he's experienced such suffering as a blind man. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you my little diagram. Because um, what does what happens? Jesus comes and finds the man in verse 35. He finds the man. The man doesn't know who he is. Remember, he didn't see him. How gracious of Jesus that he seeks him out and he finds him because he knows that this man, this man is ready. This fruit is ripe. He finds the man and what does he say to him? Do you believe? And what does he say? And and then? Isn't that amazing? Jesus. What, what, why do you think Jesus went to find him because he was being harassed? harassed? And because, because he's already professing faith in Jesus. He's bearing witness to who Jesus is. He's like one of Jesus' own sheep. We're going to talk about sheep and shepherds next week in chapter 10. He is one of Jesus' own sheep who's professing faith in him despite opposition. He's stepping out in faith. Every time he is asked by the Pharisees, who is this man? He says something deeper. He's a prophet. He's from God. Um, He professes his faith by increments, and he just gets more and more out there, just keeps taking these leaps of faith. And it's because he is so certain about what Jesus has done for him. He's so certain that Jesus has rescued him from this lifelong blindness. He knows it without a shadow of a doubt. And his faith just grows. And his faith, um, knowing the truth about what has happened is one thing, but he goes on and John shows us that faith is more than just saying, God did this. It's about saying, having faith specifically in Jesus and in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done. So he's saying, no, Jesus really is. He's beginning to say, Jesus is who he says he is, even though he hasn't heard Jesus teach. And he goes on in this encounter with Jesus, who he can now see because of what Jesus has done. He says, Lord, I believe. And he he worships him. The Greek for worship is to bend the knee. I keep picturing if I were to direct this as a play or a film, I would have the man falling down on his knees and worshiping Jesus. And that's the progression that he's gone on. He is um, physically blind. He was physically blind. And then he encounters Jesus, and he is given back his sight. He is restored to physical sight, but he has found something else as well. He has found something more lasting that will transform not just his physical life, but his spiritual life. And he's found, what has he found? He's found faith. Faith is spiritual sight. And now, um, what happens, what does Jesus then say about the Pharisees? After he is commending this man, they're blind. Okay, I did my little diagram. I had wanted to have the um, whiteboard, but I don't. So I don't know if you can see this. But the Pharisees start out here. They're at this high point. They think they know. They think they have spiritual sight. They know all about spiritual things. What are, who are you that you're trying to teach us? Remember they say to the man. Um, and the blind man is physically blind. He's humble. He doesn't know. They both encounter Jesus. And what comes from their encounter with Jesus? 
the Pharisees' blindness is revealed, their spiritual blindness, because blindness is associated with disbelief in the Gospel of John. They're blind. They cannot see who he is. He keeps trying to open their eyes about who he is. He keeps trying to tell them. That's what he's been doing for all of chapter 7 and chapter 8. I am. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Come and believe in me. He's trying to woo them, get them to believe in him. But they end up just being spiritually blind. And um, the man who was physically blind has just gone and um, in encounter with Jesus, his height, his physical sight has been restored, but then he has also gained spiritual sight. So just think of this diagram. I find it helpful for looking at what is going on here. And Jesus talks about this throughout the gospel, that in encountering Jesus, there is no gray area. You believe. And, and that belief and faith in him is truly a gift from God, um, just like that physical sight was a gift for that man who was once blind. Um, and so for us, I put um, down on your sheet a little quote, and I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to pray. Um, but in fact, that this whole passage is a real miracle that really happened, but it's also a parable of faith versus unbelief. There is, um, in a sense, judgment in encountering Jesus. For judgment I came into this world, he says in verse 39, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And so I'm going to read this quote from John Tasker. By being content with the law that came by Moses, and by shutting their eyes to the grace and truth which came by Jesus Christ, the Pharisees are being plunged into the darkness of unbelief, as surely as the once blind beggar is walking more and more toward the illumination of faith. (coughs) So may this be so for us too, that we walk more and more toward the illumination of faith, which is itself a gift from God. So let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open up our eyes to you today, that we would see your hand at work in our life. Oh, come and rescue us. Rescue us from our blindness. Open our eyes to you. Open our eyes physically. Open our eyes spiritually. Whatever it is in our life today that needs your special touch, your healing touch, um, that needs um, needs you, we ask, Lord, that you would enter in today and, and uh, that this would be for your glory and for our spiritual benefit. All this we ask in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.